Hi, everyone. Just before we get going, I want to remind you that everything we talk about and discuss should not be considered as investment advice. The purpose of what we talk about on Catherine Murray Media and Markets on YouTube, as well as Catherine Murray in conversation with on my podcast, should be viewed as informational and entertainment purposes only. Please definitely do your own research, your own homework, and definitely consult an investment professional before making any investment decisions. And also to note, some of us might hold positions in some of the stocks uh, that we discuss. Lauren, great to be able to catch up with you. It's been certainly a while, but our viewers uh, know you very well. So thanks for being with us. I appreciate coming here, Kat. It's great to see you again. Thank you. It is, it is definitely fun to see people that we've seen for for 10 years, right? And for sure. even though we're not together, we can still at least see each other and talk, um, which is great too, because I love this kind of longer format as we think about investing, your, you know, your outlook right now. And also, you know, your focus is more of a value investor and also um, looking for companies, good companies with dividends, because I think that's what a lot of people are looking for right now. So why don't we kind of just start big picture in terms of whether or not you're bullish or bearish, it seems right now and may the fourth that it, it's got a bit of a sell and man go away but then there's also a lot of potential tailwinds to the markets over the next couple of years so where do you stand so first of all from an economic viewpoint Catherine I mean of course things are incredibly bright um, you know by the end of the year you know the vaccine will have been rolled out across the western world people will be getting back to where they were before to some degree and consumers everybody was worried in, before COVID about consumer debt now the savings rate in, in North America is at a record high consumer savings. So consumers are desperate to go on vacation, go to restaurants and spend money. Governments are still priming the pump. So you've got consumer spending ready to roll, tons of government money there. So from an economic you know, standpoint, things look really, really bright. Um, from a valuation standpoint, low interest rates have driven the world for the last number of years. Valuations are certainly not as cheap as they've been historically, but in investors are looking for yield. That being said, as I tell you know, clients, we're not buying the stock market, we're buying individual businesses. And so there are still great pockets of value. So as long as one has a five-year time horizon, we ask ourselves, can the stocks we buy delivered a 10% you know, annualized return? And um, otherwise we're not gonna buy them. So we do see value and our bullish over, over that term, but I have to say, of course, um, as I tell clients, as much as we think we'll have a good return, you own stocks, your portfolio is gonna fall several times between now and the next five years, and it's like last March. Um, you, you own equities, you need to be ready for those times and certainly not panic. And if there was any lesson from a year ago at, the, at this time, if you own good companies, just write it through. Mm -hmm. And is that exactly what you did, or, or did you? So we, we actually we actually had we had a fair size cash position. We wrote we actually wrote an email to our clients on March twenty third of last year, saying we have no idea where this is going, but we've been sitting with this cash position, and if we don't spend it now, we'll never spend it. And we've listed a whole bunch of businesses we were buying, but our focus was on buying the best of the best because we said if if this recession goes on longer than one might anticipate we at least want to have companies that are, are going to be around for the long haul. So that's exactly, we didn't hesitate. I have to say the team did a great job. Hmm. And Lauren, um, when you say that um, consumer savings is at a 50 year high, 
that's great in terms of pent up demand. Just a couple of questions that are going to follow this. Um, but we also know that, you know, government printing of money is at an all time high as well. And, and when I speak to fixed income investors, you know, one of their biggest concern is that the next crisis will actually be a sovereign debt crisis. Now, that might be years and years and years away. Maybe you're thinking about that, too. But for right now, like how, how do you how, how does that not or where does it weigh in on your thinking about the equity markets and the bullish outlook? So I think I think we have to separate two things, Catherine. In terms of sovereign debt, there's a big difference between developed market debt and emerging market debt. So listen, uh, first of all, you know, as a chart we 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 put out from from Office of Management of Budget, which is you know, U.S. government debt is of course at record levels, but hey, this money was raised at basically one percent for ten or more years. So the interest burden on the US economy is actually declining. It's actually in pretty good shape. And the best friend of debtors is inflation. So if we get some inflation, the money you borrowed last year, you have less to pay back this year in real terms. So we're not at all worried about a sovereign debt default. That being said, um, as I say in Argentina, I think they've defaulted four times during my career. And, you know, there, there's room for other countries to run into that. We're not worried about that. Governments will, you know, will, a bunch of deficits are going to come down around the world over the next few years, that's for sure. Um, but it's, 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 it's not really, it's not a huge concern. And when I say we're bullish, we're bullish on those parts of the stock market that still represent good value. Um, under any market conditions and, and not bullish on those stocks, which are, you know, factoring in phenomenal growth for the next five years. We did do in our last letter, Catherine just published, we went back, when's the last time we had high inflation? It was of course the early eighties. So we said, what happens if you, you know, bought the stock market, the S&P 500 in 1977, you held it through inflation that went from 6% in 78 to 13% plus in 81, 9% by 83. Your 10 year return buying it before and holding it would have beaten inflation by 8% a year. It was a 14% annual return. The reality is companies, when their input costs go up, they simply raise their prices. We own Diageo. Uh, they make Johnny Walker Scotch among a thousand other brands. But you know, mm -hmm. if their input costs go up, they're just gonna raise the price, make the same margin, their profits will grow. And so equities, and real estate and other, other hard assets tend to be a fantastic hedge against inflation. Whereas government bonds, of course, get decimated during inflationary times. So would we be owning long-term bonds if we were bond investors today? Absolutely not. Right. Too much risk and minimal return. Yeah. And so when we think about, when you're talking about the value-oriented areas of the market, you know, with, with the run-up in the overall markets, uh, people are saying, look, it's hard to find value. And if it is values, is there a lot of risk in that value? Um, is it a value trap, in other words? So let's talk from a, I mean, we can do geographic first. Maybe that's a good way to start in terms of where you're really placing your bets. What does that look like? Sure. So first of all, um, we, we were never, you know, huge investors in Canada until about a little over a year ago. And so we certainly have a Canadian allocation. First of all, the dividend yield in Canada, because of the underperformance of Canadian equities for a decade, we're getting an average a dividend of three and a half percent. Canadian bank stocks, 
um, still offer excellent value from a credit perspective. They're in fantastic shape and trading for maybe, you know, 12 to 13 times earnings somewhere in that bailiwick three and a half percent dividend yield. Telcos, you know, even though there is minimal growth there at the present time, as Canadians, we pay among the highest wireless rates in the world. And so, you know, Bell Telus keep on, Mentelis keep on raising their dividends. You're talking about a five to 6% dividend yield. And, you know, it's the only place in the world we have retailers. We have Dollarama as an example, because there's no overlap with Amazon. So there's value in Canada. Hmm. So we're not investors in, in oil and gas or mining from that perspective though. Um, an, an overlooked market has been the UK. So we own a couple of UK companies with the whole Brexit you know, thing happening. There are pockets of value in the UK. Home builder named Red Row as an example. Um, and then you know, elsewhere in the world, we, financials we see you know, in the US and in Canada, great value. Financials lagged over the last number of years up until recently. And a, a rising interest rates and specifically a steepening yield curve is extremely bullish for insurance companies and bank stocks. So, I mean, there, there are opportunities and, and you know, healthcare has been a bit of a laggard as well and we see some opportunities there. So we, we see opportunities, um, but we, you know, not in Tesla as an example. Hmm, right, that's not quite your style. No. No, and I, I actually wanna divert for one second and talk about that so that investors understand, you know, there are, or viewers understand that there are investors who, have or are big believers in value investing or growth investing or GARP, which is growth at a reasonable price. Um, you know, maybe just describe to, in, in your words, what a value investor means and, and maybe even why that's your choice versus growth. Sure. So first of all, I find value and growth are, you know, separated as two different boxes. So for us, value relates to what value, what price we're paying for, for the earnings growth we're getting. So we own Alphabet, which is Google, which would be considered a growth stock. We own Microsoft, Microsoft would be considered a growth stock. For us, they're value stocks because when we look at the price we're paying, the moats around these businesses and what we anticipate their earnings growth to be, for us, these are every bit as much value stocks as Allstate and Royal Bank are for us. But the market has historically said, okay, you know, growth stocks are tend to be those techie stocks or but you know, other stocks with really quick growth rates. And so you're paying a big multiple for them, where the traditional, you know, Ben Graham value investor was buying, you know, assets at less than book value. But the reality is, I mean, value really is, am I getting a good price for the business I'm buying? And so, like I said, within our value mix is mm -hmm. Google and Microsoft, but also Royal Bank and Allstate. Understood. And Lauren, um, you know, value at the end of the day has been out of favor for a very long time as a style of investing. Um, and you know, and, and so because of that, there's actually not a lot of value investors out there like there were 20 years ago. Everybody's kind of moved to that growth or maybe small cap or black box or, um, you know, what have you. I mean, in, in institutional equity sales, I, I covered all these types of accounts. So, you know, and with that, if, if there's fewer value investors, that means there's really less money chasing some of those stocks. Not that that's the reason to invest or not invest, 
but it does factor into the return performance. So maybe just talk a little bit about that because that's that's been hard for for some value investors and and you know and that's why we don't have as many. There they were it was easier to go growth. Sure, and I think you know Warren Buffett figured this out quite a while ago. But value and you know buying things as a, as a, you know I'm getting a discount to book value. There's a lot of great companies where book value is not a great um, indicator, a good metric. So I would certainly put any software company into that bucket like Microsoft, a company like Google where the traditional book value metric is not really relevant. And so investors that are sticking to that pure value strategy are missing out on large parts of the market. Hmm. Whereas, you know, so that, that's been one of the reasons for their performance. You've missed a whole bunch of companies that have revolutionized our economy that are great businesses and who have real earnings and cash flow. And so um, certainly that sector has been that area, you know, called value investing traditionally has been a laggard. I think more and more over time, I mean, investors learn to value a Microsoft, an Alphabet, a Cisco companies that would not normally be traditionally considered value stocks, but if they're trading for, if you're buying a stream of earnings at a cheap enough price, that is value. Mm -hmm. And so um, also a lot of value stocks, you know, I mean, oil and gas used to be a large part of the economy, a large part of the markets. You know, the mining companies, they are shrinking as a percentage of the market as a whole. Um, and, I, and so I, I don't, you know, investors that are sticking to those types of uh, sectors and strategies may find themselves missing out on where, which companies are growing in our economy and you know, it's like Tesla might be a value stock at $100, but, you know, for us, not a value stock at $600. Just as an example, it's a function of price. Right. And and so that, you know, people understand, because I think I, I, what I'm trying to also achieve in these conversations is to, um, you know, appeal to our current and old viewers, uh, but also really try to help people understand and and feel comfortable getting into the market with that you need knowledge why is it that uh price to book doesn't work for a google or a microsoft um we need to describe that sure so traditionally a company might make an acquisition okay and if an oil and gas company for example buys a, an oil field then they might pay a billion dollars for it as long as that oil field actually has the amount of oil in that book value will remain stable. It might decline over time slightly, you know, as they pull the oil out of the ground, but it's a pretty good metric, which relates the, to, the, to the asset value of the business. Whereas a Microsoft, when they bought LinkedIn as a specific example and paid a fair bit of money for it at the time, there were no hard assets there. They were simply buying what we call goodwill, which is, really immeasurable. It's just their assumption of what the earnings will be. So they paid a massive multiple of the actual book value because there might've been a small amount of cash there and not much else in that company. So from a book value basis, it looked like a crazy acquisition that they're paying a huge valuation for. In retrospect, what has happened is Microsoft figured out 
that forget about the assets we're buying, we're buying a platform. And Microsoft has been able to increase the ad revenues and various other revenues from buying LinkedIn. So on a book value basis, LinkedIn would have made no sense to a traditional value investor, but mm -hmm. someone who is looking at the stream of earnings that could be generated said, hang on a second, this is actually a great acquisition, which it's turning out to be. Right. And I appreciate that. So bottom line, it's really about um, the, um, not the tax treatment, but the the um, income statement treatment for various acquisitions. Correct. You're buying, it, you're, it's a function of accounting, really. Exactly. Um, you're buying an income stream. And Microsoft felt really comfortable that they could generate a great income stream. What are the hard assets for a LinkedIn? There's mm -hmm. no really hard assets. It's a, it's a platform, um, but the hard assets are, you know, some computers and I guess some desks and things like that. Um, it's the fact that they've got a lot, of eyeball, a lot of eyeballs on their platform and a lot of us are using it for various different things. Everything from hiring people, you know, they're, they're, they figured all kinds of ways to generate revenues. Mm-hmm through LinkedIn and, and they're growing that business at a pretty hefty rate, I have to say, but on a book value basis, you'd never have bought it. They could make eyeballs hard assets. Exactly. And that is, you know, the, that's really the monetization of those platforms are the number of users that use it. And then they figure out ways to sell advertising and other things. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I just want to point that out because, um, you know, depending on, and everybody needs to know this, depending on the sector, whether it's retail, oil and gas, technology, whatever it is, there are different metrics that matter to the stock price performance and there are different valuation metrics that people care about and ones that they don't. So that's why I'm kind of just spending a little bit more time than we would if we were on uh, linear TV. Um, so I think that's just important for people to learn. That is really, um, actually, that, that's a great point you made different metrics for different industries. Yeah, that, that move the stocks, it's just, and, and that affect the companies and move the stocks and have different appeals. It's, and, and that's why, you know, Lauren, um, you know, people who are new to this, you have to know the rules of the game. And that's why you're the portfolio manager, but you've got a team of analysts that help support you in, in understanding those different industries and sub-industries and knowing what matters and what doesn't. Like it, not everything matters for all industries. It's so critical to getting the stock right. Um, so Lauren, you said that you are now more interested in investing in Canada. Uh, you talked a little bit about, um, it owning in the UK and a few stocks in the United States, but you're very bottoms up stock specific. So am I wrong then to ask you geographically, is there a percentage you want to be in, in certain areas or not? No, we don't have a specific percentage. You know, our, our global strategy is roughly 50% US and the, you know, a chunk in Europe. Um, Japan has done well. We used to have a large weighting in Japan. That weighting has shrunk um, because a lot of the you know, value stocks we bought back in the day realized their value and we moved on. Um, we see value in Europe, I have to say, but in specific companies, everything on the healthcare field. One great global healthcare company is Philips. Uh, if you, in fact, if you walk into the Dutch company, if you walk into a, any hospital room, I hope no one does, but if you have to, you'll see so much equipment around the patients is, is Philips diagnostic equipment and the like. Um, they've done a great job. 
Sanofi, the French pharma company, um, also trading at a very reasonable valuation, good dividend growth and, and, and earnings growth, not no big tie to any one drug, you know, driving the, the company, always mm-hmm. an issue with pharma. And so, you know, we, we do see value, you know, in different sectors, again, even in Europe, financials, ING, for example, the Dutch bank, purely retail. Mm-hmm. Um, I've always said in two countries, you never read about the Netherlands and Belgium, you know, two boring companies with, you know, very stable economies. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're pockets of value, but, you know, we've also been more active, Catherine, in the last 18 months than we've been in the last five years. Hmm. With all the volatility, um, we have to be very cognizant that if stocks really hit our valuation targets, you have to ask yourself, if I, if I bought them when they were cheap because I thought they'd reach fair value, mm-hmm. if they go past fair value, why do I still hold them? Right. You right. Know, so we, we, we've been more active than we have been in a long time. Hmm. And, um, and, and staying with healthcare for a second here, let's talk about a few of the, the names that, um, that you like. CVS, so drug retailer, but of course has a healthcare component to it uh, with the pharmacy. Hugh, to what degree? Oh, uh, half the business really, the earnings are, are coming from other sectors, uh, other, other parts of what they do, the, the pharmacy benefits management part. Also, we like pharmacy in general because... Pharma, and we're seeing it in the States now and in Canada as well with the COVID vaccine rollout. The cheapest way to, to, to get the, these things out to people is not to have them go to hospitals. Um, when we think about the Walgreens and CVSs of the world, um, your interest in this, Lauren, is, is really thinking about um, pharmacies being a medical delivery Situation. Sure, and, and, and we're seeing it in Canada as well with people having to go to going to pharmacies now for their COVID vaccine. It's way cheaper for the system to send people to a pharmacy where the system is already in place and the government's not paying for the infrastructure than to have them go to hospitals. Pharmacies love it for the same reason they love having the post office in the back because it brings people into the store and then they go to the back and you know hopefully pick up a few items along the way. Um, and also get paid for this. So it's a win-win for our, our government medical system, which is, you know, over spending so much money on healthcare. In Canada, mm-hmm. the provinces are spending 35 to 40% of their budgets on healthcare. And uh, a big win for the pharmacies as well. So we expect to see over time pharmacies benefit from increasing, have, you know, healthcare rolled out through pharmacies. It'll, it'll be blood tests and, uh, taking your blood pressure and all kinds of things, which can easily be done in a pharmacy at minimal cost to, to the pharmacy itself. So it's uh, we like pharmacy. And Lauren, why CVS versus Walgreens? Like when I think back to my William Blair days when I was a junior equity research analyst, um, you know, Walgreens was always the kind of best in class first choice. You yep. often saw Walgreens perform very well. CVS was always playing a catch up trade. And, and the stock had, was better on a value perspective because of that reason. So um, walk us through why like a CVS versus a Walgreens. Sure, so Walgreens has stuck with the pharmacy only model and they bought Boots in the UK, which has, they paid a large price for that. And um, it's not looking like it was a fantastic acquisition for them in terms of the price they paid. Mm-hmm. Whereas CVS has gone in a different direction to become a vertically integrated healthcare provider. So if you can imagine one of their large businesses, the PBM business, they'll go to the General Motors of this world 
and they say, you know, you guys are spending, let's say, a billion dollars on your health plan. We'll manage this for you and bring your cost down by 100 million. So, you know, General Motors wins. And then they can direct some of that business to the CVS stores because they're vertically integrated. Um, GM, so the, the company wins in the first place. Uh, more things get diverted to a CVS, for example, and the like. And so that vertical integration provides a lot of synergies, and which we're already seeing happening. And so they've, they're, they've become a completely different model than a pure Walgreens. And it's showing up in the profit growth. And, you, you know, when you buy CVS, we're looking for, you know, 10% annualized earnings growth over the next few years. And you're paying about 10 or 11 times earnings. Um, mm. They're going to be growing. So it's a, it's a pretty attractive company to buy um, and benefiting from a whole bunch of different areas. So, so Walgreens is figuring out ways to catch up. But the PBM business, so pharmacy benefit manager, um, back in the day, well over a decade ago, maybe two now, <laughs> they were their own category within the healthcare sector, PBMs, owning, owning PBMs. There was a bit of controversy certainly surrounding them. Um, so I don't know if, if you had looked at that in the past and, and can speak to why there was the controversy and, and is there any today? So first of all, one of the controversies was are patients getting you know, treated in the best way if the goal is to reduce healthcare costs? So I think that that is a valid, was a valid question to be asked. In the US, it was a little different because um, patients were forced, you know, instead of using uh, name brand drugs, to use generics, really not a big deal in Canada. That's been going on for years. Uh, but that, that's always been part of the issue um, has been our, really are our, our patients getting treated the best? I mean, the reality is every company is looking to cut back on their healthcare plans. Uh, expenses are, are just are mushrooming. Uh, that being said, uh, the system seems to be working much better. It's quite regulated as well as the rest of the healthcare sector is. But it's the, and there's also fewer PBM players around today because of acquisitions and the like. So it's become more of an oligopoly type business. Um, but I think the, the real juice in the business is the vertical integration where you can use the pharmacy side, the PBM side, and pull it all together. And that it's that combination which is really driving the earnings growth for a CVS. It's not the pure pharmacy business, which is a, which is a tough business. Yeah, and that's important, an important distinction in terms of if you're going to look at any of these companies, these um, you know, Walgreens is of the world. Um, staying with healthcare for a sec second as well, Becton Dickinson is another name. Remind us their business and why you like it. Sure, I'll tell you why we like it and why they suffered during COVID. Becton Dickinson, why we like it is 90% of their products are disposable. So everything from catheters, testing equipment, it, it's all, you know, it, it, we love that because healthcare is, a, is just growing because of the aging population. And if you're in the disposables business, then, you know, people getting tested, you know, all going to hospitals, operations, all the rest of it just means more demand. What happened during COVID and why Becton Dickinson suffered somewhat uh, is because elect uh, elective surgeries, of course, mm. um, fell dramatically for obvious reasons. COVID patients taking up more beds. So Becton Dickinson's earnings suffered a bit for sure last year, 
um, all those people who want to get, you know, knee replacements, hip replacements, et cetera, had to delay their surgeries. So that being said, you know, we should see a big bump in Beckton Dickinson's earnings just for catch up over 21 and 22. Um, but they've done a great job in folding in acquisitions. They've got great margins. And, you know, in the areas that they are, are active, where their businesses are, um, those verticals, there aren't a whole bunch of competition at their level. Distribution is a huge thing in that business. And so it's really the mega players. Hospital doesn't want to have 27 different suppliers for catheters and the like. They'd rather buy them from one main supplier. So Beckton Dickinson, I wouldn't call it an incredibly cheap stock on a earnings multiple basis, um, but it's certainly going to deliver really good earnings growth. And we find it for us a core holding. Um, many years ago, Lauren, I um, was on, when I was at Goldman, I was on the deal um, of Thermo Fisher Scientific, which has been a stellar, stellar company and a stellar, stellar stock. We were offering it. It was follow-on offering $24.50. I think it was $24.50. That's always, because I th we had to kind of, I think we, that was in the range. Um, we did change it a little bit, but it, it was such an incredible company. And because it was during the dot-com boom, a lot of institutional investors were not interested, but I was able to get a good order from a special situations portfolio manager, if you can believe it. And now that company is, so it's in the same line as, as Beckham Dickinson. Um, and I, I personally didn't buy, it. I certainly wish I had. What's the difference between a Thermo and a Beckton? I think Thermo is involved um, in some more specialized areas. Beckton Dickinson, I would say, is not that they're not specialized because everything in that field is somewhat specialized, but I'd say they're, make, they're, they're less of an R&D type company and, um, versus, versus a Thermo Fisher, which is, would be more of, more of a specialized R&D type. You know, is Beckton Dickinson making cutting edge products um, they're making more mass used products in hospitals. Yeah. So that's the way to think about it. It's, it's Matt, both, both companies have its mass use. And it, I think it's yeah. interesting. Yeah. Um, and of things that you would never necessarily think about. And these are a couple leaders in it. It's incredible. Um, what, what's the other, it sounds like it may be a smaller cap, uh, healthcare company. Yeah. So Viatris is the cheapest stock in our portfolio and there is some risk to it. Um, no one's heard of Viatris because the company was the uh, merger um, between Mylan Labs, the generic drug company back, this was in November, and the Upjohn division that was spun out of Pfizer. So those two companies merged in November. So this, mm -hmm. this is a brand new enterprise, if you will. If you look at the valuation, maybe it's five or six times earnings. So it's incredibly cheap. They disappointed the street um, in with their, in the first, the last quarter, the December quarter. And so the stock is trading for next to nothing. They are going to pay out a chunk of their free cash flow in the form of dividends. So we think that'll happen in the second quarter. So by July, there'll be a dividend yield attached to it of maybe three to 4%. Hmm. And at the valuation that it's trading at, not very much has to go right. Um, it's the Upjohn folk that will, that are running this company did a really good job at Pfizer. Um, this company needs good management, but as, as we say, you know, they're a well-capitalized business. They've got some good franchises. If they get to the point of having average management do an average job, 
maybe this will trade at nine or 10 times earnings, which would provide a big bump in the share price. So we don't need much to go right with it. But if you do look at the Wall Street research, they're all saying we want to sit on the sidelines and wait for a few quarters and see what happens with this business. But the valuation we're paying with tons of free cash, our free cash flow yield is like 15%. Hmm. So, well, so it's cheap, but it has some yeah. risk. Yeah, interesting. Um, but just to familiarize ourselves with it, and I do remember um, the spin out out of J&J. I'd forgotten about that in Mylan Labs. Um, what, 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 what are the different business verticals that they're in? So, so Mylan was a generics company. So they have the generic side. Generic side. Um, Upjohn has some very mature drugs. Um, and so they're built, you know, they've got a pipeline as well. Pipelines are always risky. So in our analysis, we're giving no value really to the pipeline. We're looking at the cash flow from the generic side and the existing drugs and saying, okay, what is this company worth? No, we don't have a 15 times earnings, but do we think you can get to nine times earnings, which would be a 50% increase in share price? That we do. And with a three to 4% dividend yield attached to it, it looks like a compelling buy. But, you know, mm-hmm. a company like this could disappoint again for over the next couple of quarters. The stock could get cheaper still. That's why I say there is some risk. There's no financial risk. There's, there's no balance sheet issue here. It's a free cash flower, but mm-hmm. could be choppy, choppy waters for the next few quarters. Okay. Um, and we talked a little bit about um, your interest in owning financial, specifically some of the Canadian banks, um, but y'all and insurance companies. And on that front, you have... Um, two U.S. companies to talk about, Allstate on the insurance front, and then also Goldman. Sure. So, I mean, listen, Allstate is the premier property casualty company in North America. They are pure property casualty. They do it better than anyone else. And one thing I will say about them, we always read about companies buying back stock. And, you know, sometimes their share count doesn't go down very much because they issue a bunch of options and they're spending tons of money and, you know, share counts remain the same. Allstate share count, Catherine, mm-hmm. is less than 50% of what it was 15 years ago. So this company is using its free cash flow. They're creating value for shareholders. There's annual dividend growth. They have very strong margins. And they're be- the whole industry, by the way, is benefiting from one. This is one thing that is going on which is drivers and homeowners are not making small claims because they're worried that their rates are going to go up. So this is a trend that is, you know, we all understand it because I, you know, I, I, yeah. I had a kid hit the back of my car and I didn't make a claim as an example. So all states benefiting from that. And also more and more uh, companies are using apps and the like to measure drivers and to get a better idea of how to price their product. So Allstate, you know, 12 times earnings, phenomenal, you know, double digit earnings growth, steady dividend growth is compelling. Um, Goldman Sachs has been an underperformer up until maybe a year ago or so. Um, The evil geniuses, as I call them. Mm -hmm. Um, But Goldman is, first of all, every financial benefiting from a steepening yield curve. You know, as the Fed takes their foot off the gas pedal, we expect to see long term yields rise continue to rise somewhat. And that steepening yield curve is really bullish for financial companies' margins, really bullish for Goldman's margins. And, and Goldman has just done a spectacular job continuing on the investment banking side. Even the recent scandal we saw, not scandal, 
the issue with that, you know, family office fellow, Archipagos or whatever his name is. Yeah. Um, Goldman and Morgan Stanley, you know, got out of that thing before Credit Suisse and others. So, you know, they did not take a significant loss. We also own Morgan Stanley as well. So uh, you have a chance to buy these businesses at like 12 times earnings or so, which is, you know, in any market, uh, a pretty decent valuation for a world-class business. Mm-hmm. And um, just to go back for a second, what's the other UK company that you, you like? You mentioned Red Row and the home builders. Red Row is the largest home builder. Okay. The, the other one is Compass, which is in a business which, you know, they supply food to, to food courts, as an example. Well, who the heck is going to a food court? Okay. Uh, hmm. But also to hospitals, prisons, and the like. So the stock had been a laggard. They had to raise more equity probably over the summertime. Um, but they are, you know, best in class in Europe. They're a UK-based operation, but best in class in Europe. They've done a phenomenal job at acquiring, you know, similar type companies, improving margins. They, and, and, you know, for us, we look at this company and we see high single-digit uh, earnings growth at uh, a pretty compelling uh, valuation um, and not a lot of competition. And so that's one of our drivers there. Okay. And, and Lauren, I, I, um, just because they're international, I want to just make sure I've got the right tickers from you. I don't know if they're, are they ADRs? Are you buying on their own exchange? No, we're actually buying these two companies in London. Okay. Okay. All right. So that's what people have to do. Um, Lauren, let's uh, take a few viewer questions right now. Um, for Lauren, since I know he has a value yield bent in a lot of his analysis, does he see retail read exposure in Canada as good value here, Rio Can as well as smart centers? So I have to say on the office building and retail side, um, we would be pretty cautious. We don't have exposure. Um, listen, every I'm in a large office building in Montreal. We're in a building in Toronto as well. Everyone we speak to can't wait for their leases to come up so they can, you know, take less space going forward. So it, office is going to be a really tough place to be for the next number of years. Um, retail, you know, has been badly damaged by COVID as if it weren't badly damaged enough before COVID. So again, we expect to see as leases come up some decline in those areas. Not to say there might not be smart operators, but just, you know, you, you'll be buying into a tough industry. So just be careful, um, even on the residential side, the apartment side, um, we see value in a company like, you know, CapReit, which is Canadian Apartment Real Estate Investment Trust. But even that sector is being hit because no one's traveling. So all these investors who bought condos in Toronto and elsewhere to put them up on Airbnb and for student housing are now dumping them on the long-term rental market because there's no one in them. And so that's why, you know, Toronto rent, condo rental prices are down sharply. But mm -hmm. for us, that's more of a temporary phenomenon. Um, but I have to say a lot of the REITs are back to where they, you know, trading near their all-time highs. So it, it's a tough space to find value in an environment which is really undergoing change. Okay. Um, next question is from Rick in BC. I love this. Um, my question is about Enbridge. I hold this stock in my Canadian portfolio and will long-term. I love the dividend performance. What are your thoughts? Thanks. So we own Enbridge in our Canadian dividend strategy. One thing we say, it's becoming 
somewhat apparent that it's going to be really tough to get another pipeline built in North America for the obvious environmental reasons, NIMBY reasons. Um, I see in Michigan, the governor is, you know, shutting down, you know, part of a, part of a pipeline. It's just, so the existing pipelines um, are going to be able to raise their rates over time. Unfortunately for Canadian oil and gas producers, you know, they are stuck. These are the only outlets for them. And so, you know, Enbridge is doing something which we're happy about, which is increasing their dividend at a, at a slower rate and paying down some debt. So, you know, we prefer companies that don't have a lot of debt. And so we're happy with that strategy at Enbridge because we think it will create a more sustainable business over time. So Enbridge and TransCanada, TCE, are benefiting from the fact that there is just no one can build a darn pipeline. Um, and so shippers are forced to use them and they'll be raising their rates over time. Hmm. Uh, and therefore likely passing that on to the consumer. Exactly. Yeah. People don't sometimes realize that the lack of pipeline uh, capacity and the ability to build will absolutely hit their pocketbook. You know, we'll see that. Day, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. The other day, what? At, at the end of the day, if you look at the, actually the price of if, if you get, you know, natural, if you're heated by natural gas, now the actual commodity price of natural gas is a tiny price of what you are paying. The bulk of what you're paying is, is the transportation cost. Yes, you're 100% right. Look at your bill, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think I know the answer to this, but um, what's your thought on white cap resources? I don't think you probably invest there or Imperial oil. So we don't actually hold any oil and gas producers in our firm. And my comment is, I think if I, if we never buy another oil and gas producer or mining stock for the rest of my life, I don't think it'll impact my net worth. I, I just think there are, do we want to spend our time trying to guess where the price of oil or gas is going to go, um, or gold for that matter? Or would we rather buy companies who are, which are growing over time, whose earnings and dividends will grow over time, who have control over the prices they charge? And, and that's kind of the way, you know, if we look at Barrick Gold, just as an example, I'm not picking on them, but they're like the largest gold producer around. Mm -hmm. Barrick Gold share price is roughly the same share price as it was 30 years ago. So there's been no shareholder value created. Compare that to Canadian bank stocks, great consumer companies. I mean, it, it, it's, the answer is obvious. Yes, if you buy it low, sell it high and, and keep on doing it and make money, but that's true for anything. These are just tough places to be. Mm -hmm. You know, I was wondering, though, when you think about... Um some energy companies like Exxon. I personally bought Exxon because I like the dividend yield. I think I sure. bought it over 8%. I figure they're going to be around, especially, you know, with the lack of capacity in the energy sector as well. So that was the reason why I kind of stepped in. So I thought maybe you'd go there, but no. No, we're, we're not there. But I will say when people ask me for a renewable company, um, some of the largest investor investments, investors in renewables are the big oil and gas companies. Yeah. Oil Dutch Shell to tell BP. I mean, they understand that 30 years from now, oil demand will look different than it does today. And they're repositioning themselves. And so they have, you know, they're spending billions of dollars on re renewables, renewable technology. They're investing in all kinds of businesses. They're, they're becoming mini 
private equity venture capital companies because they see the future. So, I mean, listen, a lot of these are well-run companies like an Exxon. They're not sitting still. I have to say, if I would be investing in that sector, I'd be investing in those types of businesses because they have the financial capacity to make those investments today. Mm-hmm. Makes they're sense. Not, they're not in reactive mode all the time. Yeah. Um, Lauren, uh, we'll wrap it up here, but before I let you go, I'm, I'm asking, I think everybody who I interview this question, regardless of their focus or sector, uh, what, what's your take on cryptocurrencies and, and Bitcoin and what have you? So first of all, Catherine, I was afraid you would ask me this question. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm teasing when I say that. The reality is I've never heard anyone explain why crypto would be attractive unless you are a drug dealer or someone who wants to get paid and hide money from the government. If I ask any business, would you like to get paid next month in a, in a currency for which you don't know what the value will be, no one has answered that question yes. It reminds me, if I can just end on this, that Peter Lynch, the great Fidelity fund manager back in the 80s and 90s, said if, if someone went in to sell him an idea, he would take out his trusty egg timer and turn it over. And if you couldn't explain the idea in three minutes, he'd throw you out of his office because it's too mm. complicated. I've never heard anyone be able to explain cryptocurrency to me in three minutes or an hour. And, you know, the old maxim, if you don't understand it, you better not invest in it. Mm-hmm. So I'll leave it to people who are smarter than I am. <laughs> that's a that's a perfect way to end it. And I love the idea of a three-minute egg timer. Peter Lynch is a pretty bright guy. Yeah. He, we certainly do know that, don't we? So. <laughs> <laughs> um, Lauren, great to see you and speak with you. Appreciate Catherine, your time and everything. Great to spend time with you as well. Thank you. We'll do it again. I hope Thanks. and God willing. All right. Thanks so much, Catherine. Thank you. We'll see you later.